This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Bite pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Bite, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon first bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hi, I hope that y'all have been enjoying First Bite as much as I've been enjoying making this and doing all the research behind the scenes. I'd love to uh, meet with y'all live and I have some upcoming lecture tours that you can catch me at. And I just wanted to share a little bit in advance that way you can get it on your calendars. So on April 5th, 2019, I will be at the Arizona Speech Hearing Association in Phoenix And their conference this year is at the Sheraton Crescent Hotel. And on that Friday, I'll be presenting three lectures all around early intervention and pediatric feeding and swallowing. And the following weekend, I'll be at the Minnesota Speech Hearing Association in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'll be presenting on Friday and Saturday, April 12th and 13th of 2019. And their conference this year is at the Hyatt Regency. So please be sure to stop by and say hi if you're out in Phoenix and or a week later in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go from hot to cold in about a week's time frame. But whoop, whoop, I will see y'all in the spring. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. 
I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Colatown, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category, and we are talking all things private practice. Everybody out there is nervous and rattling their fingers because I know I always am. Um, I am stoked yet humbled to introduce our next guest, Andy Larry, MS, CCC, SLP. This fabulous lady regularly whips me into shape on multiple fronts. Andy is South Carolina's State Advocate for Reimbursement, which stands for STAR, with ASHA. So her and I interface and advocate on numerous reimbursement issues together in South Carolina, as well as she is the billing guru for my humble little practice of Heartwood Speech Therapy. In that vein, this woman knows my strengths and my oh-so-honest weaknesses and shortcomings when it comes to how I do my paperwork. Or shall I say the ugly timeliness with which I don't always do my paperwork? And that's um, a bit of honesty that I am willing to admit to. Every time I talk with Andy, whether it be around a big oak table in a meeting or over the phone while driving between patients' homes, which more often than not is that, or while I'm listening to her speak at her state conference. She not only mentors my clinical practicing soul, but she also nourishes me spiritually and my emotional heart. I cannot begin to describe the depth of love and respect that I have for this woman, not to mention how I adore her ever so quick, sassy Southern wit. So Andy, I mean it. I am, I am grateful for you because you've, you've given us the, um, the ability to make things better here for the Palmetto State. So thank you. Um, but on that note, before I go extra sappy and super emotional after a lack of sleep last night, let me transition over to Miss Andy. So how in the world did you learn all that stuff that's up there in your noggin? And how did you start taking on stranded clinicians like myself and attempt to turn us around? So hi, where are you from, babe? <laughs> well, originally I'm from New York, but I've lived down in this area of for 30 years now. And um, it, it all started because basically I'm unemployable. I'd, pre- I'd prefer to be my own boss. 
And so I started out small and um, when home health agencies to which I had um, contracted myself out to decided they weren't going to see children anymore, I'm like, uh, excuse me, but there aren't any pediatric clinics around and what are we going to do about these kids? So we started, me and another therapist started doing um, the therapy consortium, which actually was just to try and get therapists involved that wanted to see one kid or a bunch of children. And I would figure out how to do the billing and then and also do the therapy as well. And then other people would contact me about trying to get things, trying to get money for what they were doing. Because when we're in school, we're not really taught about getting the money. It's more like from a social work perspective. At least that was eons ago when I was in school. And um, so I had to kind of work to help people feel comfortable about, about putting a value onto their their services. Nowadays, it seems like people are a little bit better about putting a value on their services, but sometimes they do end up working for free, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I've done that once or twice and you fixed it, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, we, we try not to. Um, I mean, basically, we know that our purpose is to help our clients to communicate better, and that's why we're in the field. Um, whether we're audiologists or speech pathologists. And we need to effectively communicate to the people that are willing to pay us what it is that we do and um, and get paid for that service because we need to make a living, obviously. I mean, we do it because we love it, but on the other hand, we, we do need to make a living. And I think that part of the problem is that documentation is always looked upon as um, – this negative thing, like, oh, I got to go do my paperwork and you just pull out your hair because you want to treat, but you need to uh, let people know what it is that you're doing. And the only way, unless they're sitting in or having a, a, a video of what you're doing, they don't know what you're doing, especially the people that are going to pay you like insurance companies, Medicaid, et cetera. So our documentation is really that only thing that reflects what it is that we're doing. So we have to have a different mindset. It's like um, you, you're going to be doing the same action. For example, if say you want to um, get ready to go somewhere from in your house, your your mindset is different. I'm going to go and get a slice of pizza or I'm going to go and get a flu shot. You're still going to get ready. You still are going to have to go somewhere, but your whole mindset is different. Well, that's similar to trying to do your documentation. If you're doing your documentation to show the world basically what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're you're helping these children progress along and, and so they'll be functional in life. The only way you can actually do it is through your documentation and then of course, you know, them being in the world. But in the meantime, you have to have a way to show that what you're doing has value and that value is reflected in what they pay you. I'm just thinking. How do I psych myself up for paperwork time? <laughs> yeah, I, you do feel like you're headed for the flu shot. And I really do like pizza. Maybe if I pretend that I'm psyching myself up to get cheeseburgers, that would be the trick. Well, you know, we're trying to make a case. We, you know, the, the thing about it is also if you look at it from a legal perspective in the sense that you are trying to make a case for these people to pay you. And if you make a crappy case, then they're not going to pay you. And, 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 you know, you're doing a good service. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're doing what you're trained to do. But 
if you don't present that on paper adequately enough, you're not going to get anything for it. And you're going to have to stop seeing that child and doing what it is that you're, you want to do and where your heart is. Yes. And I'm thinking I've got one right now that I'm going to have to document the kid needs the services, but the family's not compliant. Okay. Let me hold that thought because I'm getting ahead of myself to, and I need to get back to the first question because we, you and squirrel friend, I love it. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have a lot of ground to cover, but to start with, what do you see as the most critical guidelines that private practice owners should be following? And then to kind of piggyback on that, when you see us shirking those responsibilities, what do you recommend that we do to fix it? So what are our point of system failures and then how can we fix it? I think one of the weaknesses, again, is people's a willingness to document and document completely. And the guidelines are all there for us. Like in the state of South Carolina, we have the Medicaid manual. And that to me is one of the highest levels because it's it, it, it specifies exactly what it is that they're looking for as far as the, the foundational, what you need to have in a referral, a script, all that kind of stuff. And then what they're looking for in an evaluation report, what they're, what you're looking for in um, your, your quarterly progress reports. I mean, it lays it right out there. A, a good place to find the resources in how to put that, that information on paper is, is in like the ASHA practice portal. It's there. They, there's, there's all kinds of guidelines. And I think a lot of people don't bother to go look and use the resources that they have. Another place is if, if there is managed care in a particular state, they usually have guidelines as well as to what they're looking for in your documentation. So again, the weakness is we, get, we, we have to follow what it is that they want. We have to give them what they want and maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. You know, some people are very wordy, but you have to get at least the minimums in there and then and, and do it. And if I find people that aren't doing it, well, number one, they end up, I, I, I send them emails. We <clears throat> try and remind them what it is that they're supposed to be doing. And it, it ends up reflecting in the fact that they can't get paid for services. Why? Because their documentation isn't there. So it's, it's, it's a interplay. And I try and present, give people samples of other people's work that, you know, of course it's redacted, but other people's work so that they can have a, a, a a view of what is expected, um, but you can't make it's again, you can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Some people just want to do the minimums or they might be in a situation like say they're working full time for the schools and then they're going to be doing a private practice on the side. The documentation requirements are totally different and they're carrying one of mindset into the other setting and that isn't going to fly. Okay. I've, I have been, for lack of a better word, the victim of that. When I, I mean, I came to Virginia, went into early intervention from hospital setting. So everything I wrote was super technical medical jargon. And it was not always user family for user friendly. for. And I did not know from state to state, the differences and the requirements. So where they are unique to states, there are certain guidelines and best practices. And folks there, ASHA, ASHA has a scope of practice and 
I can't talk, ladies. It's been a long day. And position statement. Position. Position. <laughs> this is why I teach the kids to eat, Annie, because I can't actually do the phoning part. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> thank God Angela's working with my bear. Otherwise, that kid would never learn how to pronounce his speech sounds. But um, Asha has a position statement on speech language pathology and early intervention. And they have, and, and it kind of outlines it's supposed to be natural environment. Um, we are not supposed to be bringing in bags of toys to the homes and those kind of things. But I also, um, through working with you and then working with Daniil here in town, came, it was highlighted some of my personal deficits. What I did not realize is that in an evaluation, you have to not only give a standardized score, but if you if the assessment that you use, especially for the population that I treat, severe and profound, I don't administer the PLS-5. And folks, if you're listening the PLS-5, ASHA has a position statement out on the specificity, sensitivity, and validity or um, shortage thereof of the PLS-5. So Google that, check it out, or email me, um, firstbite at speechtherapypd.com. I'll send it to you. Uh, but they also require uh, percent delay. So I, use, I like to use the Rossetti infant, infant toddler scale just because the kids are so far behind and it gives a really good accuracy. Like I did an eval a week and a half ago. The child is 18 months old, but skill sets commiserate mastery age of six months. I can't just say child is functioning between the three and six months age and the six and nine month age. I have to say they're functioning here, but this is the percent delay, which I have to calculate. I mean, it does not come with that calculation. So in my eval, I also have to include a narrative. And the narrative, folks, the narrative needs to include not just what parents report, but also your observations, because often that is very large difference. And then what struck me as so interesting, and I did not know this until Danielle told me this, our evals have to include justification for services. And so the university here in town, they have all of their students upon, while they're doing their notes here, they have to give justification for services. And that ends up being quotes, best practice quotes from research articles. So I have my data bank of patient um, warrant skilled speech therapy one time a week for 60 minutes due to oropharyngeal or whatever. But then I say why, and it's in a quote and with a reference. And we have to, we're supposed to have those in there. That's a best practice thing. I had no idea. Years I went through with actually putting any justification for services. And I was like, oh, snap. But then you're very meticulous that in our plan of cares, we also include attendance and cancellations and why. That's correct. We, well, that's because the managed cares in this state of South Carolina, they require our they require several things in the quarterly progress reports. They require the attendance because if the child has poor attendance, are they benefiting from services and why should the managed care continue to pay for their services? Um, if there, there's also a parent response to home program, a child parent response to home program, because it's been proven that if the families or the caregivers are not following through on the therapy, then um, the, the child is not going to to make any progress either. So they look highly at that piece as well. And if there's no parent 
or caregiver cooperation, then there's really no use to be doing the therapy. And it's frustrating because, you know, sometimes that child, the only interaction that child is getting is what they're getting from their therapist. But from a business standpoint that the managed cares are looking at, they're like, well, you know, yeah, that's all fine and good that you're stimulating this child. But if you're only seeing that child for an hour out of their week and someone else is with them for all the rest of the hours of their week, what difference are you making? So that's why they look at that. And even though our hearts break, they're looking at that. And that's a legitimate thing to look at. Yes. And and I have written in my goals. My first goal is always my home exercise program. And then, and I only write two or three goals, the HEP, then one for dysphagia, and then one for functional communication. Sometimes it's two for dysphagia, give or take whatever the etiology is. But I did not start doing that until after I'd been out for a few years. And it wasn't until like my, the second company I was working for, um, for early intervention, the first company, they weren't doing it, but they were getting a lot of denials. And after, I can't remember how many years it was ago that you and I crossed paths and you asked me about that. And I was like, wait, what? Where's the best document? Like, "Mm, that's a thing. (laughs) All right. So, in, in the quarterly plans of cares or quarterly documentation, you have, you should always have attendance, parent follow through. And, and that gets back to that. Um, what was it? The October edition of the ASHA leader where they talked about parent coaching. There's some good strategies in there for parent coaching and parent involvement in a natural setting. So folks, if you need something, I, I would check that out. Um, where else do you see private practice? people shirking responsibilities? That, that's really a tough one because I don't, you know, I think they're good at, at, at trying to build their caseload and they're good at um, seeing the children and being consistent about seeing the children. I think their hearts are in the right place. I think really the the main weakness is wanting to wanting to document, wanting to prove what it is that they're doing and making their case that this is what they're doing and not operating on um, be, uh, operating on the automatic mode, but just you know making changes and, and and doing things. So you know I don't think it's the clinical piece as much. Because in our profession, most people do want to attend, C- you know, get CEUs, not that they just have to, but because they want to, especially people in private practice. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it's the clinical piece. I think it is, is the business piece that they're not, you know, the, the weakness, the weak link. I always, I always struggle with getting all the phone calls returned back to personally. That's, my, that's so challenging for me getting everybody's phone calls or text messages returned. But I mean, I also, I'm a mom. I pick kids up and then I have to go do those things. And it's hard because, you know, parents call when they have an opportunity and it's after work hours. So that's, I, I struggle with that, but. But that is the beauty of texting, you know, because it, Back before we had text, I mean, like I said, I, I was I was back before there were even beepers. So there were no cell phones, there were no beepers, there were nothing, and I was doing home home based services. Um, and you know, you had around. Do what? 
I'm kind of driving around. I would have been so lost. How do you get by without a Waze app to tell you which turn to make? Like I know. I was up in rural Maine driving on snow-covered roads and, and you know, the only way people would know if you were still alive is they call from, you know, your schedule to see, oh, well, she hasn't gotten here yet and she left this place, so she's somewhere in between. You know, that was all we had back then. <laughs> but, you know, people did have landlines, so I was able to call once I got from place to place. But anyway, but, you know, now... Now we have text. And so I think that texting is a key element. I mean, you, you don't have to give out PHI information in it, but you, you know, the parents can know right then. And there's videos you can do of, of you know, what's going on in the therapy session. So there, there's, there's so much ways to communicate that can keep those lines open. Like say, if a child is being seen in a daycare center, or if, if, you know, by the end of the day, the parent thinks of something and they can text you and you can just quickly text back because really people don't like to talk on the phone anyway. Um, so, you know, that is a, a wonderful tool. Hmm? I said, except for me to bug you about something, but you know, there's that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So then my, all right. So my next question, um, I've seen you speak several times because I, I call you and beg you to talk at Skisha every year. So, but, and I, and every time I learn, um, and normally it's issues with documentation that I notice that I have errors on. So what are your top documentation errors? Like if you, and, and you talked about it, but documenting in a daily note, I know you spent, a good chunk on that last lecture talking about um, in February about last February about our daily notes and how we have to demonstrate it's a skilled service. So Correct. can you talk to that? Yes. Um, I look at a daily note, say a soap note as kind of like a flow, like in the S section, it shouldn't just be, I walked in and the child was smiling and happy. Or the child just woke up from a nap. Yeah, that's okay to put that. But the S section is also the section where you can put the, the parent response to the home program the week before or the, the caregiver's response to the home program. You know, what, what did they do? What worked? What didn't work? It doesn't have to be a tome that's written, but it needs to be addressed. Then in the OA section, response to the goals, you know, what did you do? How, what did you use? How did the child respond? Because some people forget to put how the child responded, you know? And so, and that's important because that's your supportive, your supporting documentation for what you're going to put in your quarterly at the end of this section. Then in your P section, it isn't just continue POC. That does not demonstrate any level of skill whatsoever. Why in the heck are we using a licensed CCC SLP to provide this service if, you know, we're just putting continue POC? So in that P section, you know, when you're doing therapy, when something's working, when something's not working, when that light bulb goes off in your head that goes, oh, I want to tweak this on the next time, you're going to be jotting that down anyway. You know, where am I going to kind of go next in that next session? Because you, you get your ideas 
for the next session from the session that you're in because you're seeing how the child is responding. So that in the P section, first of all, that's what should be in there is those little light bulb ideas that have come on. And again, it doesn't have to be a lot. It can just be little bullet points. And then the second thing is, what is the home program for the next week? So that whole visit note is kind of a flow. What was the child like when you came in? What did they say about what they did last week? Their, yours, you know, the, what you actually did during the session and how the child responded to that. And it ends with, what are your plans for the next time? And, you know, what's the parent supposed to be doing during that week? So it gives a complete picture because that's what, if you get audited and they look at your chart and you just have child smile, used Legos, and will continue plan of care, did you, did you show why they're paying you whatever rate that they're paying you? Did you show that, that they should be paying you for that? I don't think so. But yet you didn't actually, you did so much more, but you're just not you personally, Michelle, but I'm just saying, but, but the person writing, <laughs> writing the note is just too tired to really write out what they, what they did. Um, so they're not getting credit for what they, what they did and where the child is going and how the changes, and it might be negative changes, but it still changes. You know, so that's why that daily note is so important. And then because you've actually put that information into the daily note, it's so much easier to write the quarterly because you've got, you've got something to back up what you're saying in your quarterly. Um, one thing that helped me was, um, uh, Paul, the OT that I work with, he mentored me when, um, we worked together at a company a couple years back and he was like, I take the last six to eight minutes of every session and write my notes then. And, and we, and we do this in a sniff. We do this in a hospital. We chart right there at the end of the session. Um, and if, if folks in the public schools are data collecting the entire time, basically, bless your hearts. I don't know how you do that, but, but whoo, I'm grateful for it. Um, but on our end in home health, we don't always do that. But he said, use that as your time to do your parent like your concluding parent training. Use the teach, reteach model while you're writing your note and you're going through. That gives them insight to say, okay, well, I saw two overt sign symptoms of aspiration. Those wet coughs, mama, we got to watch those. That's what we're, and use those as like a teachable moment. And then uh, he really stressed the importance of that HEP, the home exercise program, using that right then and there and getting them to verbalize comprehension or return demonstration. Like, and for him, the return demonstration, I mean, that's critical for OT. Can they stretch? Can they do the things that you just spent the session doing? But um, I, and when I behave myself and I practice good time management skills, which let's all, I mean, I'll admit, I, personally suck at that, but I'm better when I have a student there because I try to model best practice for my students. Also, again, thank you to everybody that's ever ridden shotgun. Um, when I do it right then and there with them and get the students in the habit, it makes me stay on top of it and I'm less likely to fall behind in my note writing. 
Because otherwise it's Friday night, you're sitting down at the end of a week and you're exhausted and trying to remember all those little details. I mean, so in a way it was better when we did only do paper notes because, you know, you could be doing your paper note right as you were going along. You had it on your clipboard and you were writing as you were finishing doing your session and then finishing things up. Now it's kind of a little bit more difficult because so much of it is electronic. And unless you have signal or, you know, and sometimes you don't want to bring a laptop in, but you can use, you know, iPad or whatever. Um, but it is a little bit more difficult, especially if you've got some of these rambunctious kids in a home setting. It's, it's, it is difficult to do that right then and there. So we're still working on that piece. <laughs> You say rambunctious kids and there's a house that I go to that I'm not quite sure how many dogs they have. And like me trying to sit down and write a note at the end and actually concentrate on my cell phone, hitting every little key when there's like several dogs that when you sit still, that means they need to be in your lap and on your person. They, one of them peed on me a couple of weeks ago. That was a, a professional moment. And the mom was like, I'm so sorry, but he likes you. You've been marked. And I'm like, thank you. I have to go take a shower now. Uh, trials and tribulations of home health speech therapy. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. Okay. All right. So are there any other errors? I know we focused in on the daily note, but are there other biggies? Um, oh, you talked about one that I, oh, it changed my world. The, the, the date of the re-eval. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Well, according to Medicaid guidelines in the state of South Carolina, we are required to um, do an annual re-eval. It doesn't need to be on the date. It really shouldn't be after, but it can be any time before that. Um, and, it, and it's essential. I mean, it's a must. It's one of those musts. Same thing like in our, in this state, again, quarterly progress notes are not a, uh, oh, it'd be good if you did them. It is a requirement. So, yeah, and you have to have annual prescriptions in this state, and you have to have you know the the consents signed annually. These are these are requirements. Yes, I I did not know that your your consent had to be done annually. I thought if you had it done once when you started practice, I did not know that that needed to be done when you have 
on on the same annual basis when you get like a new script and do your reevaluation. Mm-hmm. It does. It, it's it's a Medicaid guideline. Now it may be different for an insurance company, you know, commercial insurance, but again, if you have the mindset that I'm going to use the highest standard, the most string actually the most stringent standard, which in our case happens to be Medicaid, then every every chart is the same, so you don't have to overthink, oh, do I need to do it for this one? No, I don't. I do. I mean, if you just stick with the same guideline, then you're, you're fine. Um, I, I have one that's a personal pet peeve of my own. Um, our state has the, um, early intervention system, um, where we put all, all of our daily notes are supposed to go into that early intervention system computer program. That way all treating clinicians can access and see what it is that you're working on. That helps me when I can't do a co-treat with PT, that I can't do a co-treat with the OT, but I can see on a week-to-week basis when I put my notes in week-to-week <laughs> um, what they've been doing in the other sessions. Um, and the way our state currently has it set up, the only um, recourse if you don't put your note in is if they have baby net, then baby net does not pay you until the note is in. However, best practice indicates that for every child that has baby net, regardless of who pays out, their note should be in there. And it bothers me tremendously because regardless of who pays, I put my note in. Um, but there's numerous, and I didn't do that when I first started because the company that I worked for didn't tell me I had to put my notes in. So I did not know because I wasn't told otherwise. But now that I do know that it's supposed to be there and it's supposed to be best practice and um, it bothers me immensely when there's other therapists on the team that don't put their notes in and I can't do that quick continuity of care. Hey, they're working on tall kneeling. Hey, they're doing this. Or, hey, I should be working on crossing midline with those blocks when we're, you know, engaging with like counting or up and down and over and those kind of things. So that's, so check, check those. I know we all don't know what we don't know, but, you know, trust, but verify if your director supervisor says to do this, then, you know, it, it always behooves you to make sure that the information that they're working off of is current best practice for your unique state. And it's not even necessarily best practices, Michelle. It's it's a contractual. Uh, it's it's in, it's part of the contract. If a person is doing the birth to three program in this state or whatever state you're doing, you are under a contract with that agency, the birth to three agency, and they have their policy and procedures. And when you you sign or your facility signs then you are still held accountable for doing what's within that contract. And if, 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 like in our state, putting your documentation on a regular basis into that um, system is contractual, therefore it must be done. There's no, there's no, it's, it's a must, another must. <laughs> another must that has been missed. Roar! Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. All right. So we covered what needs to be in a daily note. We've covered what should be best practice indicated in um, eval quarterly plan of cares. We covered that your um, 
every year you should annually have a uh, consent to treat signed. Um, mine also includes that, you know, they consent to treat, consent to attendance, consent to cootie policy, consent to social media policy, consent to release of information with family and that they've read, recognized and paper mache the HIPAA policy. <laughs> HIPAA takes it's a lot of dry reading there. Um, but uh, what, what else did, have we missed anything else that you see us missing? And folks, I asked her this question because she does randomly go through, I own my private practice, but she does my billing. So she goes through and audits my files, which makes me a better person because I don't know what I don't know. So um, throw me under the bus. I think it would be good. You know, I've, the way my, my consortium is set up, I've got like 65 contractors, PTOT and speech across the state. So I don't necessarily know all these people personally. I mean, I have to trust them and they have to trust me that I'm going to pay them once I do billing for them. But I feel like, and, and I think this is also kind of a best practices nationwide would be more peer review. I mean, true peer peer review. I mean, I can't look at everybody's notes. I can't read everybody's notes and I'm not the queen of notes, but to set up networks, especially with people in private practice. And I know there's probably a HIPAA thing, but you know, there's a confidentiality confidentiality agreement that can be signed so that other people can actually begin to look at your notes, look at your reports and see is there are there things that need to be tweaked? Are there things that are missing? Are there things that would make the documentation better? And I think that sometimes comes from other people looking at what you're doing or sometimes even knowing that other people are going to be looking at what you're doing. So that's just a thought. Um, that's a good one because I've had students get back to me on they add certain bits of information here or here and I've added that because I don't, I mean, let's be honest, how many of us actually want to take a documentation and coding update? I do every year when ASHA does their, you know, they start the documentation and coding update at the beginning of the year. What is it in January? Normally it's like the 20th or it's around the, it's like the third week in January. But I mean, some years it pertains a lot to us, like the ICD-10 codes overhaul. But this year the update had a lot more to do on like the Medicare rugs and those kind of things. And so it wasn't as pertinent to my tiny little world of early intervention home health. Um, but, hmm. Okay. All right. I'm looking at the clock. Let's move on, friend. Okay. So I wear a lot of hats <laughs> and I often struggle to keep them all balanced and straight, which can personally lead to me slipping up in some of my business practices. Oh, the shame. Um, so I know that some of my shortcomings, I am not, I was not diligent about sending out my eval and plan of cares to physicians for signature sign-off. I just, I personally would fail at getting that fax out. So instead of me continuing to fail, and I don't like to feel like I'm failing my families and that continuity of care and failing the patients, I renegotiated my contract with my referral coordinator, Jennifer, so that she sends those out. I know that they're done. She sends them out. She gets a signature, she scans and she uploads them. But that has made, that was, it wasn't me cutting a corner. It was me just, I couldn't figure out how in the world to get that 
piece done. So do you see, I mean, what were your trials and tribulations of cutting corners and, and how do you recommend that we can fix those bad habits if we're currently in them? I think by people really using a spreadsheet, um, keeping a spreadsheet for all their clients and putting, I mean, it's a very simple spreadsheet, but the initial evaluation date, so that leads them to uh, their re-eval date, the date of the prescription for services, the date that their quarterlies are due, if they get have managed care, the date that the, um, the, the end date of the authorization. So if they just keep a running spreadsheet of what needs to be done, and then they can check off. And even a, a, a sheet that I give to people when I'm doing some training, which they can use or not use, is for their daily visits, they can have their mileage on that same sheet, but also have some columns that they can check off if they've done their daily note or if they have to put it in a secondary place, like we have to put ours in the or birth to three program, um, that they've done that. Or if they're, if they haven't done it, then there's a way that they can mark that they haven't done it so they can remember to go back and do it. Spreadsheets are a beautiful thing. And so, okay. So you said to make sure, hit, 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 let me add this one there. Yearly consent. Cause it just dawned on me. I don't have that. In my, I don't have that in my spreadsheet. Okay. So mine, I have patient name, then requires prior authorization and the due date on that prior auth. Um, then I have a column for primary insurance, secondary insurance, a column for plan of care due date. I love how I'm making everybody listen through with my OCD level here. Um, their annual reeval due date. I just added a column for the yearly consent. And <coughs> one of the things I, we have here, the medical home networks column. <coughs> So is there any column you think, and I, I don't, the daily note ones would just be too overwhelming for me visually. I would, I would, that, well, that, that would have to be, that wouldn't be on your, your overview that what you're talking about is like an overview spreadsheet. That first one that, that you just talked about, the other spreadsheet would actually be something that, you know, I don't know how you keep up with your visits and your miles and who you saw and that type of thing each, each day you know, as you list your clients and all that, but that's the page where I would put, you know, if I did my note for that particular visit, you know, is, is there, is it in, is it in our electronic system and is it in the other electronic system or if there's a reason why not, that's a whole separate thing. That's like on your clipboard for your daily thing, or whether you mark it off in your uh, calendar, if you keep a physical calendar, but you know, that's two separate things. One is your overview of everybody. And the other is just what, what you're doing on a daily basis. I have to say, I have heard you, <laughs> you know how long it told, took me to build that little Excel spreadsheet, man, that was like a year's worth of being in my business for myself to be like, Oh yeah, I got to What's a medical hubs network. Oh, that's a thing. Okay. But one of the things that you have shared is that a lot of folks get in the bad habit of going in and signing off on their note with their just their signature so that it's done, but not necessarily um, putting the note in and then forgetting about it. Um, and, and the computer program that we use <clears throat> to do notes and billing, that allows 
the program to bill an invoice to generate an invoice because it looked like it's completed, but it's not necessarily in there. And um, and I have done that in the past um, and, you know, forget or thought I saved a note and it's not in there. Um, so that's sometimes um, folks, there's, I mean, you can message me later if you want. I genuinely like the program that we use um, because it allows me to go in and see when the note's written. There's a, a, a profile that you can go through and I don't know how to explain it better than that, like a check systems. But that's one thing that I know I've gotten in the habit of cutting corners that I need to work on. But I don't think the system will allow that anymore. I think once it, once a note is signed, it cannot be edited. I think that's been a change with the newest because it's it's really the other way was kind of illegal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so. I'm glad I don't do that anymore. Yay, Michelle. Um, I I do. My the only complaint I have about that is if I go in to write an eval and then I do like the follow up a week later. Like if I've if I do my eval and I write it, type it, sign it, and then I go back the week later for the IFSP meeting and the mom tells me something and she's like, oh yeah, I forgot about this one major thing. Well, my, my eval signed, I can't edit it. And that stinks. So then I have to make addendum. A, addendum. Wait, that's an option? That is an option. Yes, ma'am. And it, there's an option. You can add an addendum and you sign the addendum and date the addendum. Yes, ma'am. That That's in there. Well, I think and adding a note in like the patient file section. I fay. Oh, boogers. Okay. All right. I will, I will have to do that. Um, all right. So before we switch over to questions, is there anything else that you would recommend for somebody who's new to private practice or trying to turn a page? And um, as my youngest sister would have said, make gooder choices. What is your the, the best advice, pearl of wisdom you can deliver? Talk to people that are being successful in practice. And there's a, an organization called AAPPSPA, ASPA, which is the American Academy of Private Practice and Speech Pathology and Audiology. And it's a Say that again. American. That's a lot. Yeah, AAPPSPA, which is American Academy of private practice and speech pathology and audiology. And they've been around for 50 years. It's been a long time. And they're just, it's just a wealth of information and caring, loving people. They have a convention every year. Uh, they have tons of information. And if you, nowadays, if you go on to the ASHA communities, there's private practice portals. There's also private practice Facebook groups. There's just there's tons of stuff. I mean, private practice seems to be the thing to do these days. But before you step into it, get some knowledge, you know, learn what it is that you need to do and then do it with integrity and, um, you know, and, and, and quality. Um, there, just so that folks listening know, their annual conference is eligible for continuing education credits. And it's in Phoenix, Arizona, May 2nd through 4th of 2019. I couldn't make it to the April one because I was tied up lecturing. And this one I might be able to make it to, but it's been um, on my to-do list. So, um, and, and they had a booth at ACTA. Don't they have a booth at ACTA every year? Yeah, there's one. Yeah, they do. And, and it's one of those conferences. They even have like 
hospitality people like and, and hospitality is not my strong suit, but I was on the committee. And, you know, you just make people feel welcome. You know how you go to a big conference and people are just, you know, on their own in their own little spheres and no one's making inviting you to dinner and you're just like alone in a crowd. Well, that doesn't happen at this conference. There's usually you know, a hundred or so people at the conference and you, you kind of get to know everybody because everybody is just so warm and welcoming. and um, they just want you to gather the information that you need and also to hang out. That's where you get so much more information. I love it. They, I, I went by the booth and it was all the women were like, you're new to this? Oh, honey, we'll help you. And I was like, give me all the wisdom. I need this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, okay. I got I got one girlfriend in particular I'm thinking of that I need to um, send this link to because she would love this. Okay. So... Um, I do have to make a shameless skisha plug because it is Tuesday and we will be there. Um, well, I'll be there tomorrow. Um, but it is our 61st annual skisha convention in Greenville, South Carolina, February 7th through the 9th. So for all of y'all out there listening, um, come by, come down, come up, come whichever direction it is. We would love to see y'all at the falls. Uh, and I know Miss Andy will be there. Uh, you, you're you're going to be there, right? <laughs> of course I'm going to be there. I just say, don't bail me down, baby. And Andy, if somebody listening has a question specifically for you, how would you recommend that they reach out to you? They can just contact me by email. My email is therapy, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y, the letter C, 1523 at gmail.com. Therapy C, 1523 at gmail.com. Correct. Okay. Awesome. Um, Andy, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for for today, for helping me provide for my family, for making South Carolina better. I'm like, I don't know where I begin. Um, I owe you more chocolate brownies. How about that? Okay. Sounds good to me. <laughs> sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for coming today. And hold tight. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite. Fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. (laughs) 